Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 20th, 2022. We're in the 2020s. It's hard to tell what they're going to be like, although they haven't been particularly glorious yet. Uh, one way to learn, of course, about the period we're living in is to look back at the past and imagine comparisons and differences. That's exactly what The Nation magazine has done uh, in their most recent issue. Uh, they have a, a, a whole issue dedicated to the 1990s, which were, according to The Nation, meant to be the end of history, and they birthed the future. And of course, today, we're living in that future, all sorts of interesting articles um, in the nation. I think it's an interesting issue. Uh, and one that really caught my attention was uh, by my guest today, Mary uh, Anais Hegler, uh, Lessons on Resistance from a Child of the First Climate Change Generation. Uh, and Mary is joining us from New Orleans, where she lives. Mary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Mary, you are a, a, a climate activist, writer, uh, an environmentalist on many fronts. What do you think, in terms of your experience, uh, we can learn from the 1980s and particularly 90s, uh, which, of course, you write about growing up in Birmingham, Alabama in the 80s and 90s? Well, I think we can learn that children are a lot I, I don't even know if this like relates specifically to the 90s, but basically that children are a lot more uh, resilient, which is a word, you know, a lot of folks hate these days, but they're more resilient than we give them credit for. Um, and honestly, their notion of the world hasn't formed yet. It's still forming. I think climate change is really difficult for us to think about as adults because we're seeing our worlds change. But right now the world is not changing for children. They're forming their ideas of what it is. So I was not taught as a child that the world was perfect and you know that things were, that all the systems in the world were fixed when I was a child. And that is a very useful lesson for me to carry into adulthood and into my work on climate today. As I said in, in your piece, you, you write about um, growing up in Birmingham in the 1980s uh, and 90s. You said, I wasn't born into a perfect world either, and no one told me that I was. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1980s and 90s. Um, tell me about that childhood, and particularly in the context of what you remember about conversations mm -hmm. about the environment, or perhaps lack of conversations about the environment. Oh, no, I definitely learned about the environment, but nobody sat me down and said, this is the environment. <laughs> they told me, like, this is how you grow a plant. This is how you pick up a con. This is how you can tell when a peach is ripe or when it's not ripe, right? Like, those were the kinds of conversations I had about the environment. It just wasn't taught to me as this separate thing from me. Um, it was taught to me as, like, this, this thing that I, that I exist within and that I have an influence on and has an influence on me. Um, but I think what I was getting to in the passage that you read is that, you know, I, I learned about um, the civil rights movement in Birmingham when I was in kindergarten. Um, and that, you know, you would think that that might be a scary thing to teach a, a young Black child, but it, it really wasn't. Um, it was a story of resistance and resilience. And um, 
you know, it, it didn't make me think that the world was going to be easy and perfect. And I think that's the, the story we often want to tell to children, but it's not realistic and they can handle a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, you also wrote, you wrote an interesting piece, uh, climate change isn't racist. People are growing up, of course, in Birmingham, Alabama in the 80s and 90s, raises the specter of, of race. What What is the connection in your mind between um the issue of of race in america in particular and climate change more broadly and specifically in in the 90s i i don't know that it stops and starts in the 90s i don't know that i can isolate it to the to the 90s well more broadly then leaving aside the 90s yeah um well i also want to add that i i grew up in birmingham and in mississippi um, so I like to say that my heart is from Mississippi and my soul is from Birmingham. Um, so they're, they're equal influences. Um, but I, I don't understand how climate change is not related to race, quite frankly. Um, there's no way to have the industrial revolution without slavery or without colonialism. Um, and there's no way to have climate change without the industrial revolution. Um, there's, Climate change, of course, has its worst impacts on black and brown communities right now. And we got to the point of runaway climate change um, through systematic oppression and disenfranchisement of black and brown people around the world. Um, black and brown people had to be removed from their land for the oil to be extracted. Um, so really, I, I don't understand how they can be separated. In terms of telling stories, you... You've written quite a lot about how we tell stories on the environment. Um, we've done some shows on that one with a, an artist, Aviva Romani, that suggests we need art as well as words to tell stories about the environment. Another with a couple of environmental writers, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Dimuth, who even opened a, a storytelling institute at Brown University on the environment. Another with a Harvard academic, Martin Pushner, on reading the classics in terms of making sense of the environment. In for you, this this issue of, of storytelling is important, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and um, how would you argue we need to tell this story? I assume in part this piece that you wrote for The Nation, Lessons from Resistance, is part of that storytelling. Is that fair? Well, yes, that's, that's why why I wrote it. Um, I think everything I write is part of the storytelling that I would like to see. Um, I think that we don't solve problems that we don't know how to talk about. And that's why storytelling is incredibly important. I mean, it's also where I work because that's what I'm good at specifically. I'm not good at writing policy, um, but I am good at telling stories and shaping narratives. So that's what I do. What do you think, um, Mary, we've learned since the 90s about telling stories about the environment. We clearly weren't very good at telling them in the 90s, partly because many, many of us didn't think about the environment. Today, it's very hard not to think about it. What have we learned over the last 30 years? And what do we need to learn in the 2020s about telling stories about the environment? Um, that depends on who we're calling we. When you say we, who do you mean? Well, I mean our audience, people watching, people in America people who care about the environment? Um, well, I think that should be literally everybody. And I think some people have more things to learn than, than others. Um, I think that the 
broader environmental movement, which is in general is quite white, um, tends to talk about the environment as a place for recreation and a place that is separate from, from them um, and a thing that is docile and needs to be protected or angry and needs to be feared. Um, and I think what I would like to see us understand more is that we are part of an ecosystem. So we are just as much a part of the environment as we are in the environment. Like it, it doesn't make sense to separate man and nature at all. You don't have man without nature. Um, and so as far as what we've learned since the 90s, I mean, that is a very long time period. Um, and so I think that honestly, most of the big breakthroughs in mainstream conversations about the environment and about climate have actually happened within the past five years, not the past couple of decades. There wasn't a huge difference in between the ways that the environment was covered in the 90s versus the early 2000s, for example. Um, honestly, there's a range of emotions that can come about when thinking and talking about the environment. I'm just now seeing the mainstream media give space uh, to those types of, of conversations. Um, for quite some time, it was either you had to be hopeful or you had to be, you know, sad and giving up. Um, and there's a lot of room in between those two. And also, I feel both of those things on a Tuesday. So it just doesn't make sense to to separate them out and to flatten the conversation and take all the nuance out, right? Like we talk so much about scientific nuance and we lose emotional nuance all the time. You've been quite critical uh, in a New Republic piece, at least, about the democratic timidity towards perhaps telling the story in the environment. Do you think that, I mean, clearly the Republicans are not interested in even trying to tell a story. Have the Democrats, as, as a political party, have they failed to tell the real story of the environment? Are they still yes. bad at telling that story? Yes. Um, but I also disagree that the Republicans don't tell a story. They absolutely do. When they talk about border security, when they talk about great replacement theory, when they talk about uh, needing to have guns to protect themselves from, you know, all the people they think they're out to get them and all of their resources, they are talking about climate change. When they talk about Space Force, even, they're talking about climate change. Um, when they talk about, you know, all the mega rich people getting bunkers out in New Zealand, um, that is about climate change, whether they say it or not. And every single time that they say that climate change is real, that is talking about climate change. That is telling a story. Um, and they've actually been very effective in telling that story. And it's either hateful or a straight up lie. So actually, they're quite good at telling the story and they do it quite often. What can we learn then from their success in terms of telling a different story? Because I'm guessing I'm certainly on the same page as you in terms of telling the story. And I'm guessing most of our audiences, too, that they don't want to tell climate change story in terms of fleeing to New Zealand or, or colonizing space? Mm -hmm. I think what we need to learn is that it's okay to be confrontational. Um, I think accountability is a big part of the story that doesn't often get told. Um, we tend to sidestep the responsibility of the fossil fuel industry in an effort to depoliticize this issue. And I think it's time to wake up to the fact that it is political because everything is political, because political is just another word for moral in our world today. Um, so there's no point in trying to avoid that or circumvent it. You also wrote uh, an interesting piece saying that climate change, climate grief hurts because it's supposed to. 
Um, should we be recognizing, I'm not saying embracing the grief, but at least recognizing it and being honest about it? I think we should embrace it. Absolutely. Grief is a human emotion. That's sort of like, you know, if you have a death in your family, should you avoid the grief of losing your loved one? No, that's not healthy at all. Um, and it's only avoiding the grief doesn't mean you don't experience it. It just means you're dishonest with yourself about it. Um, I don't think we should be able to look at the world around us lighting up in flames and, you know, hurricanes going crazy around the world and all of the suffering and feel okay. I think something's wrong with us if we feel okay witnessing that. Should we be then treating it almost like a death? But the whole point is it hasn't died. The whole point, isn't it, that it might be near death, but we're fighting to keep it alive. You can have grief about things that haven't died. Um, I, I've certainly witnessed that, you know, in, in New Orleans, you know, like Katrina died. Uh, New Orleans died a kind of death when Katrina came to town. Um, it changed the city forever. And there will always be a grief about that. But that doesn't mean that the city is dead. Um, you can grieve the loss of something. It's sort of like grieving the loss of a relationship. You know, the person's not dead all the time, um, but you still grieve the loss of what you had. If you had a, I mean, we all wish we had time machines, Mary, but they don't exist. But if, if there was one and we could go back to the 90s and start telling the story of the climate, how would we do it? What have we learned? And, and maybe I'm revising the question that I asked earlier, but if we could wind the clock back, how could we make things better today? Because clearly um, the history, the 30-year the history of the environment or environmental politics since the 90s hasn't been particularly successful. I think we could name and shame the fossil fuel industry has been a key part of this that's been missing for so long. The story of climate change has been uh, not of a victimless crime, but of a villainless crime, where both the victim and the villain are the same person. Um, and that's regular people like you and I. Um, and that's not true. There are actual villains in the story and they need, they need to be identified. They're quite obvious. Um, and actually the victim and the hero in the story can be the same person. And that- Yeah, I love that idea like of, um, I mean, I'm not celebrating it, but I think you put it beautifully, the idea that we've all fallen for this villainless crime. Is that because they, the oil companies spend so much money on public relations? Definitely. That is a very big part of it. They also, you know, have, as my uh, counterpart, uh, Amy Westervelt, has written many times, um, they have sponsored uh, plenty of news outlets, including having ads made by major news outlets. So, yeah, they're very good at protecting their image. Can Not only protecting their all? image, but creating their image. Can we, I mean, if if we had somebody from the fossil fuel industry, they will claim, I'm sure, not that I've ever had any of them on my show, but they will claim that they recognize the problem, that they're investing in electronic vehicles or other kinds of initiatives. Are they ever credible or should we always dismiss their claims? No, they are never credible. And yes, you should always dismiss their claims. Are there particular companies that come to mind here? I mean, some of them are very large, like Exxon, of course. Yes, Exxon, BP, Shell, 
uh, ConocoPhillips, with Southern Chevron, uh, Saudi Aramco, the American Petroleum Institute. Anybody who's drilling oil out of the ground at this point is evil. <laughs> There's really no way around it. And is that the story that we need or we should have told 30 years ago and we need to continue to, te to tell today? I think it's interesting. I think it's important to think of climate change less as a story and more as a saga. So um, as David Wallace Wells has said many times, it's too big of a story to tell any one way. Um, but this particular angle has been missing for a very long time. So it is one of the ways that we should have talked about climate change um, going all the way back to the 1960s. Um, they knew about climate change in the 1960s and continued to draw oil. Um, you know, they also knew when they drew their first little piece of oil that like fossil fuels will kill you the minute they get out of the ground. It doesn't take all of these decades of warming in the atmosphere for it to become dangerous. There is a reason that fossil fuel infrastructure is sited near marginalized people, near black and brown communities. Um, because they have been, they didn't need to wait for climate change for fossil fuels to become deadly to them. Do we, and, and I use, and I know you're going to call me on this word, Mary, um, you're a good journalist, but we collectively, do we have any responsibility? I take your point on it being, not being a villainous crime, but we drive our cars, we eat our fast food, we demand cheap meat, we demand ch cheap transportation. Do we have a role or responsibility in all this crisis? Of course. Of course we do. I don't think we have as much guilt as maybe you're you're outlining. But I, again, that depends on who we is. Right. So if you're listening to this and you're in your private plane right now, I think you might need to go look in a mirror. Um, um, but if you're a regular person, um, I think you control what you can control. So I am vegan because that works for my life. I don't drive that much because that works for my life. But that doesn't work for everyone else's life. Someone else might be able to make some other sacrifice that I can't make. Also, I was using fossil fuels from the moment I was born, and that was not my fault. As a newborn, I didn't choose to be born in a hospital that was being run on fossil fuels. I, do, I refuse to take responsibility for that. So we all have a collective and communal responsibility for trying to change the system. But the way that it's often been outlined is like, well, it's your fault that the world is warming because you use plastic wrap this morning. So you should just go sit down and shut up forever. And I think that's incredibly wrong. Um, and that has been a very powerful and effective um, and disenfranchising message for people for decades. I don't, I don't think that that shame and guilt has been lifted um, fully. And we didn't really even interrogate it until about 2018. Mary, you're very active on social media. You have uh, almost 70,000 followers on Twitter. What about the role of technology? Some people might argue that the big tech companies, the Twitters, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples have also contributed. They may not be quite as bad as the fossil fuel industry, but they're also responsible. Um, do you see technology as a, as a fix, digital, the digital revolution as a way of confronting this crisis or part of the problem or both? Both. It can easily be both. It depends on who, which technology you mean and how it's being used. And Twitter in particular, Elon Musk, of course, is very much in the news. Speaking of private planes, I'm sure his private plane is full of mirrors, which he can look at himself in. Um, 
is Twitter particularly problematic, do you think? I mean, you're quite active. I'm assuming you get a lot of grief on it as well from people who don't agree with you. I have a mute button. It's fine. Um, I don't know about Twitter's specific emissions. I have no idea what that looks like. But I think Twitter can be a very powerful activism platform. And I think there's a reason that Elon Musk wants to disrupt it. Um, from everything from the Arab Spring to the Black Lives Matter protests, Twitter has been incredibly useful. Same thing for, for climate protests um, and for just climate education, right? Like there's no other platform where people can get together and learn from each other that they would never, ever even interact with. Um, it's also been incredibly important for fossil fuel companies to greenwash. That is the entire reason that BP and Exxon and all of those companies are even on Twitter or on Instagram or on LinkedIn, I'm told, um, is so that they can present an image of themselves that is patently false. It's where they greenwash the most. Mary, let's focus for, for the rest of our conversation on fixes. Um, we've done many shows on how to address this crisis, uh, on storytelling, on policy. There are people who have come on the show who have argued that technology is the fix, wind and solar in particular. What's your take on that? I think it's part of the solution, sure. Um, but we can't focus only on um, mitigation because that ignores the fact that the climate has changed. If wind and solar were going to get rid of climate change, I wouldn't have experienced Hurricane Ida. Um, <laughs> so we need to adapt to the world that we're in right now. And we have not done that. So all the folks who think that technology is the savior of, of the world um, are ignoring the fact that the climate has already changed and technology has not saved the world. So what about that? Um, I think wind and solar have a big role to play, but we also need to be honest with ourselves with the types of minerals and, and, and materials that need to be mined to make wind and solar energy work, because those are also finite. And we can't consume any resource at the level that we consume fossil fuels. I learned that from wonderful journalist named Antonio Yuhas. So, uh, yeah, wind and solar is part of the solution, but that it's not the, the end-all be-all. I also don't know that we know the end-all be-all. We may not know it, but we have to work with whatever we have. What about the role of international organizations? It's again, uh, something that divides uh, environmentalists. Some have faith in the United Nations and other global organizations. Others like Greta Thunberg, of course, speak about the the blah, blah of a lot of these events. Um, should we be reliant on the United Nations, especially given the fact that, um, that the environmental crisis, even if it's caused by national governments, extends across borders because uh, the wind doesn't respect national boundaries? I don't know. I, I haven't, I don't know what the UN has done to fix climate change. Well, that answers that one. So you're not, uh, I mean, do you ever go to any of these jamborees, the COPA events, for example? They seem to no. be every year and they seem to make a lot of noise, but nothing much seems to change. No, I, I don't go. Um, I do believe that they are useful for some people. And when I say I don't know what the UN has done, I don't mean that they've done nothing. I mean, I don't know what they've done. 
So maybe maybe there is some progress that I don't know of. I know that there was a lot of par uh, uh, potential around the Paris Agreement, and a lot of people that I really respect were very excited about it. Um, but outside of that, I really don't know what has been accomplished. I, again, I'm not a policy wonk. I write about climate grief and climate justice, so there is a lot that I I don't know, and I don't want to um, I don't want to downplay anybody's really hard work or their accomplishments because I simply don't know. So what would climate justice look like? I take the fact you're not a, a, a wonk, so I don't want to get you on the narrowness of policy. But what does climate justice look like? Yesterday, we did a show on justice for animals and the idea of giving animals rights um, uh, with the American philosopher Martha Nussbaum. So we talked about justice yesterday. I'm curious what you think climate justice actually is. Is it punishing the fossil fuel industry? Is it thinking differently? I would like to see the fossil fuel industry punished. Yes. Um, I would also like to see it abolished. Um, well, abolished first and punished second. Um, I think that climate justice looks like a lot of different things. Um, one of the things I think is critical is climate reparations. Um, and that can come in the form of adaptation measures of building a new grid um, in places like Africa and Asia and all across the global South. Um, it looks like if you broke it, you fix it. That's the simplest way I can put it. So is what would climate reparations involve? Would it would require the fossil fuel industry to fund these sorts of initiatives? Not just the fossil fuel industry, but also rich nations in the global south. Uh, former, I think that it's not an accident that the exact same people who deserve climate reparations also deserve reparations for colonialism and slavery. So there's a lot of wealth that needs to be redistributed. Um, and so I think Britain has a big role to play. So does the United States. Um, so does you know Sweden and Norway and all of these other countries in Europe have a big role to play in making things right that they broke. Um, if we, uh, I mean, this may seem a, a rather dumb question, but if we did indeed, as you suggest, eliminate, ban the fossil fuel industry, where are we going to get our energy from? I, I think we talked about the wind and solar uh, component of it, but I also think we probably need to think about how much energy do we actually need. We need to think about energy efficiency, and we also need to think about do we actually need to consume at the levels that we need to consume. We need to start considering models like degrowth, which is, you know, something I'm still learning about, um, but is very intriguing. Yeah, we've done a number of shows on on degrowth um, and on whether or not saving the environment or addressing the environmental crisis is compatible with capitalism. I'm guessing you don't believe it is, that, cap that, that we need to get, and we've had a number of shows on, on, on this vision of post-capitalism. Do you think that one can combine addressing the environmental crisis within capitalism, or do we need to get beyond it? I think we need to get beyond it. If it can work in capitalism, then someone needs to come along and prove it and prove it fast. We're running out of time and capitalism does not seem able to do this. It also does a lot of really horrible things along the way. And do we have any alternative systems? I mean, you you wrote your piece for The Nation. I'm not sure if they formally call themselves a socialist magazine. They're certainly on the left, more sympathetic to socialism. Is socialism an alternative, do you think, to capitalism? Or, or do we need to come up with new words, new ideas, new visions in the 21st century? 
I don't really know. I don't. 